Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. My guest today is Anita Morjani, and she is number 600. Done 600 of these now. It's funny, things were shuffled around, and at one point you were going to be 600, and then you were going to be 599, but then things got shuffled again, and so you're number 600. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Most of you are probably aware of who Anita is. I did interview her nine years ago, but aside from that, you probably know of her. She's a New York Times bestselling author of several books. I'll read their titles here in the order she published them. Dying to be me, my journey from cancer to near death to true healing. What if this is heaven? How our cultural myths prevent us from experiencing heaven on earth. And sensitive is the new strong, the power of empaths in an increasingly harsh world. Anita is a beloved international speaker. She lives in the U.S. with her husband, Danny, and has dedicated her life to empowering the minds and hearts of people with her story of courage and transformation. She was born in Singapore to Indian parents and grew up in Hong Kong, speaking English, Cantonese, and an Indian dialect simultaneously. Prior to her near-death experience, she worked in the corporate world. So, your near-death experience. Now, Again, you know, most people will know about this, but who knows, maybe 25% of the audience hasn't heard about it. So I thought we might want to start by just a quick recap of that, and then we'll we'll go on to other things. Okay, sure. So in um, February of 2006, I was facing end-stage cancer, lymphoma. So it was beyond stage four. I was in the final stages I had lymphoma, so I had tumors the size of golf balls from the base of my skull all around my neck, under my arms, into my chest, and all the way down to my abdomen because the cancer had metastasized and spread throughout my body. My lungs were filled with fluid. My body stopped absorbing nutrition So I weighed about 85 pounds. I was like a skeleton. And because my body was no longer absorbing nutrition, I couldn't even walk. My legs didn't even have the strength to hold up my physical body weight. So I was always either sitting down or lying down. As I recall, you said your your neck didn't have the strength to hold up your head. Your head was like a bowling ball that you couldn't hold up. Exactly. I couldn't even hold up my head. It was always my head was down like that. Exactly. Good memory. And if I would lie flat on the bed, I would choke on my old fluid because my lungs were filled with fluid. So I had to be propped up all the time. And I was in so much pain and so much discomfort. And uh, I was in so much fear. I feared the disease. I feared the treatments. I feared death. So life was just awful. And then my organs started to shut down. My kidneys shut down and my organs were now shutting down one by one. And on February the uh, 2nd, 2006, I fell into a coma. And that's when the doctors told my family that these were my final hours and that I was not going to make it through the night into the next day. So basically, I was going through the dying process And while my family were around me and they were distraught, what nobody realized was that I had actually left my body. When my body went into the coma, my my spirit 
actually left my physical body. And I was aware of everything that was going on around me. I was aware of everything that was going on around my physical body. My, I was aware of my family members that were in the room, but I was aware of stuff that was beyond the room that we were in. Like your brother coming hear, from India or something, right? Yes, yeah. my brother was on a plane from India. So this was happening to me in a hospital in Hong Kong. My brother was in a, on a plane in India and was trying to get on, actually he was trying to get on a flight to reach me before I actually died. And I remember even feeling that I need to stay alive until he gets here. I didn't want to be dead before he got there. So I remember even feeling that. And I was aware of conversations that were taking place between my husband and the doctor outside the hospital room, down the hallway, and, uh, what, the, and what they were telling him. So I was aware of all of that. But even beyond this physical world, so even beyond being aware of my brother getting on a plane and trying to see me, I became aware that there were other beings that were around me who were looking out for me. And these other beings were, I recognized some of them, so they were spirit. I felt the presence of all these other spiritual beings. And one of them was my deceased father. Another one was my best friend who had died two years prior. But there were many other beings who I didn't recognize. And there they all were to greet me. And all I felt from them was pure, unconditional love. And when you say recognize, Anita, was there a visual component to it? So you could see your father with his mustache if you had one or whatever? Um, or was it more of just an intuitive non-visual thing? It was non-visual because we don't have physical eyes. So even when I was aware of everything that was happening in the hospital room and my brother or, uh, you know, flying in, you can see them, but, but you're not looking with physical eyes. But even with so subtle it, eyes, was there any visual element? There was a visual element attached to it, but it didn't make them physical. So like, say, with my dad, when I would recognize my dad, it was more like if I put it into something that could be understood here, it was almost like my dad didn't exist in, phys in the physical sense, but it was like I am made known that that is my dad, and the vision I get is the vision of my dad. But it's not physically him, but it is just an essence. And yet I knew it was him. It's almost like their essence and your essence merges and you know everything that they want you to know. And then you get a visual of who it is. And the vision is of how you last. For me, it was of how I last remembered them so that I would recognize them. So... I was aware that it was my dad. It was made known to me that that was my dad. And then with my best friend, I knew that that was her. And it was like our essences merged. And I felt from all the beings that were around me, and it, I felt just pure, unconditional love. The word unconditional is almost redundant because if love is conditional, then it's not love. But I felt a kind of love that I've never felt in physical life before, because for the first time 
It felt like I didn't have to do anything to prove myself. I was loved just because I existed. It was just the most incredible kind of love. And it felt like it was coming not just from the souls or the essences of the deceased people that were around me, but it felt like that love was coming from the whole universe, like I was bathed in it. It was like it was from source, from God, from the universe. I was loved just because I existed and I was just bathed in this feeling of love. Sometimes I'll remember subjective experiences or even dreams that I had years or even decades ago, and I can just tune into them and they're very vivid again. Is that kind of the way it is for you now with this experience? Can you just sort of shift your attention to it and the whole thing comes to life? Yes, I just have to shift my attention to it. And absolutely, the whole thing does come to life. More than that, having that experience has changed my life and changed the way that I view life or that I live my life. Like a lot of people say that as time goes by, does it lose its effect? Do you forget what it is? It's not so much recalling what happened then. It's how it impacts you so that you live life differently. It changes the way you view life and the way you experience life. It changes the way you interact or the way you handle your own self, your life. So then your life changes trajectory. It just changes trajectory. So the longer time that's passed, the more you're actually getting a confirmation every day that the way you are living now because of that experience actually works. And it is true. Every day it's being confirmed to you. And so it's actually more powerful as time goes on, not less. Mm. I hope that kind of makes sense. That makes sense. Having had that experience kind of open up a portal or a channel or something so that even now the experience is not so much a memory of something that happened a decade ago or whatever, but it's something you can kind of tap into anytime or or all the time. Yes. Yes, all the time. And that's the thing. I don't actually keep going back to that experience. I don't even go back. I try not to keep visiting the time because it's attached to me being really sick and dying and dealing with cancer. And so (laughs) I actually don't revisit any of that as far as I can, but I just tap into the portal that opened up for me from that day onwards. Yeah. Whatever was opened up, it just keeps flowing through and enriching your life Mm -hmm. moment to moment. Yes, exactly. A hundred percent. That's exactly what it is. Okay. And so to wrap up that story, you came out of the NDE. Nobody expected you to live, but there you were. You came back. And tell us what happened next. So I came out of the coma and my physical body healed. So while I was actually in the coma, I understood. I had this, what I call the state of clarity, where I understood why my body was so sick and how I had always forsaken myself and never loved myself and had always treated myself like a doormat and had always put myself down and put myself last. And I understood that I needed to actually 
really love myself and know that I am worthy and deserving of love. And there was a lot that happened on the other side, but it'll probably unravel during our conversation. Plus, people can watch um, the first one we did, and, or they can read your book, and they'll get all that. Exactly. Yeah. But I was given a choice as to whether to come back here or not. And at first, I didn't want to come back into my physical body because it was so beautiful on the other side. And my body was dying and my family was suffering. I thought, there's no reason to come back. But then when I realized or I was made to understand that now that I knew why I had got sick, that I was made to understand that my body would heal very quickly if I chose to come back. And I also became aware that we are all much more powerful than we have been led to believe. And I realized that I hadn't completed my purpose yet and that my purpose was linked to my husband's purpose, Danny's purpose. And if I didn't come back, he wouldn't be able to complete his purpose either. So with all of that understanding, I chose to come back. And when I made that choice, my dad said to me, now that you know this truth and now that you made this choice, go back and live your life fearlessly. And so that's when I started opening my eyes and coming out of the coma. And I'd been in the coma for about 36 hours. But after coming out of the coma, my body started to heal very, very rapidly. And the doctors could not understand it. And they couldn't figure out what was happening. But in five weeks, I was released from the hospital to go home and live my life cancer-free. And that was in March of 2006. That's fantastic. It's interesting you should mention purpose. The interview that I did previous to this one was uh, with Stephen Cope, and it was all about dharma and what dharma is and how to live your dharma and how to find your dharma and all that stuff. And uh, maybe you and I could get into that as well as we go along. Absolutely. Would you like to also tell us a little bit about the second book before we go on to the third book, which would be the main substance of our conversation? Sure. My first book was, of course, about my story itself. What I just expressed was about going through the dying process and coming out the other side and what I learned while I was there on the other side. So uh, the second book is called What If This Is Heaven? And the reason I wrote that book or what inspired me to write that book is because I felt that one of the things I learned was that heaven is not a place, but a state of being. And people kind of wait until they die. Or one of the things that I used to do before my NDE was I used to believe that I had to do things to build up good karma here so that I could create the perfect afterlife to have the karmic brownie points, whatever bank. Yeah, brownie points and the karmic bank to call on. And I felt that Maybe I had done things in my past life that had caused me to get so sick and have the cancer and it was my bad karma and so on. So life was spent living, trying to create the perfect afterlife. It was only when I died that I realized we're not supposed to worry about the afterlife. We're supposed to create the perfect life because heaven and hell are right here. It's experienced right here. And when we're on the other side, we really want to come here. And when we come here, we come here with the intention of living fully and loving, and we come here with a purpose. But we forget, but because we don't tune in to who we truly are. And instead, we give our power away to other people and other authorities. And, and so we end up living a kind of a 
hellish life because we try to conform. We become, some of us become people pleasers and we try to conform and uh, we end up living a life that's not our life because we're trying to fit in. We actually sacrifice our truth in order to be able to fit in and belong. So I realized that people could be living heaven on earth if they just learn to tune in to their inner voice and tune into their soul and find out their purpose and became more authentic. So that book is called What If This Is Heaven? And basically the original subtitle I had for it, which my publishers didn't use, is so it's What If This Is Heaven? And the subtitle would have been Then Why Does It Feel Like Hell? But anyway, they didn't use that subtitle, but the idea behind it was exactly that, that about creating a heaven on earth. And also what I speak about in that book is how everything that we have been taught from the time we're young is the absolute opposite of what we actually need to know and learn if, if we want to truly have a rich and inspired life, if we truly want to live a rich, inspired, purposeful life, then we really need to flip around everything that we've ever learned. So as an example, when we go to school, we learn through fear. We study because we are, uh, we're afraid of not getting ahead. We learn because we, we want to get ahead in our tests because we want a, a better place. We want to place uh, a seat in a good college and then we want to get the best job and so on and on. But all of that is training through fear, fear of not being good enough, fear of failing, fear of there not being enough to go around. And so we live our lives making our choices from a place of fear instead of from a place of passion. Uh, nobody asks us, what makes you happy? What do you really feel like doing? What lights you up? It's more about fear of not having enough money or there not being enough college places, so you got to get ahead of everyone. Even our medical paradigm is based on fear, fear of illness. People aren't taught about supplements and how to get your body healthy and what's good for your body. Medicine and science and, and, and our whole medical pharmaceutical paradigm, they don't teach you any of that. They're all about fear of illness and, and plowing you with um, pharmaceuticals. And then you have the governments also all about fear, fear of not enough to go around, fear of poverty. So basically we are brought up on this diet of fear and that becomes our marinade. And that's how we create a hellish existence by avoiding everything we don't want, which is what we're taught. It's what we're marinated in. It's what we're in, what's ingrained in us is everything that's ingrained in us is what we don't want in life. So the focus is always what you don't want. Do this because you don't want this to happen. Do this because you don't want to be sick, because you don't want to get cancer. You don't want to fail. So the focus is always on the thing you don't want. And what do we all know about when you focus on what you don't want? That's what you get. So basically, What If This Is Heaven is a book that teaches you how to focus on what you do want and how to create heaven on earth and how you need to shut yourself off 
from all the stuff that's coming at you from the outside world and from mainstream and how you literally have to turn your life upside down or inside out in order to live heaven on earth. I also speak a lot about how you have to take the risk of people saying to you that you're delusional, which is what I had to go through after my near-death experience, when I realized that this whole paradigm I live in, that everything I'd learned was completely back to front. And so I started focusing differently and I stopped buying into all the fears. I stopped living from a place of survival mode. And a few people who I knew who were my circle of friends, they said to me that, oh, that's unrealistic and you're being delusional and you have to be realistic and you have to put food on the table and make money to pay the rent and you can't live like this and that's la la land and, you know, the usual. And I said, nope, I'm not going back to being the way I was before because the person I was before got cancer. So I stuck to my guns and my life panned out in quite a beautiful way with Wayne Dyer discovering my story and then me writing books and sharing and helping people all over the world. And those same people that said what they said back then about you're unrealistic and you've got to be more realistic and you're delusional, blah, blah, blah. Those same people today, they say to me, wow, how did you do that? I want what you have. Teach me how you do that. And I'm like, well, I guess you just got to be delusional and unrealistic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, so-called fairy tales like that, you know, where the delusional guy has this dream and then he wants to do this or that. And everybody says you're crazy, but he goes and does it anyway. And, you know, kind of Joseph Campbellish kind of myth of the hero things. You follow the calling in your heart and you end up winning in yep. the end, so to speak. Exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, regarding heaven and hell, as far as I know, there may be actual heavens and hell realms or something like that. The Buddhists and the Hindus and all talk about them. But however heavenly or hellish they may be, we can experience the same degree of heavenliness and hellishness right here on earth. And, and people do. I mean, you could have Ramana Maharshi and some really messed up psychotic person sitting, looking in the same room, looking at the same mountain. And one of them is in heaven and one of them is in hell. Yes, exactly right. Heaven and hell are perceptions. Yeah, pure states perception. of mind, you could say. All right, so let's segue into Sensitive is the New Strong, and it's the power of empaths in an increasingly harsh world. And you might as well start by defining what an empath is. Yes, an empath is a person who feels what other people are feeling. So let's say if you have a spectrum, I like to think of it as a spectrum of sensitivity. So at one end of the spectrum, you have people who are, let's say, not that sensitive, who don't feel what other people are feeling, who can very easily harm people without feeling any remorse. Sociopaths. Thankfully, yeah. sociopaths, exactly. And thankfully, you know, the world is not filled with sociopaths. There's probably very, very few people at one extreme end of the spectrum most people are like, you know, along the spectrum and most, the majority of the population are probably at the midpoint where they're able to do things that harm people, but they also have empathy towards those they love and, and all. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where you have the highly sensitive people, but 
you go one pit further and you have the empaths. And here's the difference between a highly sensitive person and an empath. So the higher up you go on the spectrum to being sensitive, highly sensitive, the more intuitive you are. Because what it means is when you are at the bottom of the spectrum towards sociopath, it means you are unaware, you have no conscious awareness of the greater world around you. The only awareness you have is yourself and your needs, and you're not aware of any harm that you could be causing to the planet or other people or anything. As you go up the spectrum, you are more sensitive to your impact on this planet and your impact on other people and how you affect other people. So as you go up the spectrum, when you get to, let's say you get to the midpoint, then you have equal awareness of your own needs and the impact that things are making on you and the impact that you are making on other people and other people's needs. So let's say that's at the midpoint. As you go higher up the spectrum and you are going towards more and more sensitivity to highly sensitive and towards more towards empath end of the spectrum, what happens is you start to become more aware of other people and the planet, but it can be to the detriment of yourself. So you see at one end of the spectrum, you know, at the sociopathic end, you only care about your own needs, but to the detriment of other people. At the other end of the spectrum, it's other people's needs, but to the detriment of yourself. So you literally, the higher up the scale you are, unless you're aware of it and unless you learn how to mitigate it, you could be someone without being aware that is literally giving and giving of yourself to the point of being a doormat because you are so sensitive to the needs of other people and you want everybody to be happy and you want them to have everything. And, but you, but you neglect your own needs. You neglect taking care of yourself and you never allow yourself to receive because you believe it's better to give than to receive. And so you could be poor and destitute and depleted, but you're still there giving other people. So that's at the extreme end, the other end of the spectrum. Usually people at this end of the spectrum, the reason they are that way is because they feel the pain of other people so deeply to the point where they absorb the emotions of other people that they cannot separate it from their own feelings. It's like when somebody is in pain, they cannot shake it from their own energy. And so they end up doing everything they can to relieve that person's pain. So that's kind of how I look at it. So an empath is somebody who literally absorbs other people's emotions. Someone who's not an empath, but a highly sensitive person is somebody who is highly intuitive of the needs of others, who is wonderful, who is intuitive, who's very sensitive towards the needs of the planet and other people, but they don't absorb the energies of other people. They may still, to a large extent, care more for other people than they care about themselves, but they don't absorb their energies and take it on as their own. 
Yeah. So, you know, we could think of great saints and sages throughout history who have been acutely sensitive to others, more so than the people are sensitive to themselves. You know, they're just totally tuned in and totally compassionate and sensitive to any form of suffering in the world and doing their all to alleviate that suffering. But they have such great inner strength and fullness that they're like uh, an inexhaustible reservoir and they just don't get depleted by their efforts to help others, even if those efforts are like a 24-7 operation that seems totally exhausting. Like I can think of Amaji, Amrit Nandamai, who, as an example, just goes and goes and goes, helping others and hugging people and just you know doing all this stuff, but never seems to be depleted in the slightest. So I think the trick is, and maybe we'll talk about that, is you don't want to be insensitive. You want to even be more sensitive if possible. But at the same time, you don't want to be a drained battery. You know, you want to have your batteries continually recharged and uh, able to give without loss. Yes. And that's exactly why I wrote this book. It's for people who find that by their nature, without even trying, they're always giving and giving of themselves but they struggle with receiving. So this book is actually to help people like that, to help them to learn how to recharge their own batteries, to help them to show them that it's actually important that they take care of themselves because the world needs them. The world needs empaths. The world needs more sensitive people. The world needs their light more than ever right now. So it's become more important than ever for them to take care of themselves and to learn how to take care of themselves so that they can keep giving without being drained. But in order to keep giving without being drained, you need to learn to receive. You need to learn that it's okay to be selfish sometimes and to do things that are loving towards yourself. And that's a big part of what that book is about. Another piece what the book is about is that In today's world, the people that hold the most power in our world today, the people that have the loudest voices, are the most aggressive and insensitive people among us. (laughs) So this book, I make no bones about saying that, we can fight against what we don't like in this world and say, hey, I don't like what's going on in the world, I don't like how aggressive the world has become. But the reason why the most powerful positions are held by the loudest and most aggressive and most insensitive people among us is because the empaths and the sensitive people tend to shy away from the limelight. It's because the empaths and the sensitive people, they shy away from power, they shy away from receiving, from being out on the front lines. They shy away even from abundance, from even making money, enough money to help those who are less well-off than them. Many, many empaths who are in the spiritual um, genre of work feel that money is unspiritual. But if you don't have money, how are you going to help other people who are struggling? I truly believe, I truly believe that if empaths had the courage to take on leadership positions and if empaths had the courage to even allow themselves to be a channel for abundance, to receive money and abundance, and if empaths were able to take away the taboo 
from money and they allowed themselves to take on more leadership roles, if the world was run by empaths, we would heal world hunger in a minute, in a hot minute. We would heal world hunger because if you look at the world today, our governments spend way more money on weapons and warfare to kill each other than they do to feed each other. And if you had empaths in leadership roles, the money wouldn't be going towards warfare and weapons and, and all that. It would be going towards something that benefits people and the planet. Yeah, there's several points there. One is to get empaths or these kinds of people in leadership roles, you're going to need a populace who appreciates them and who is willing to vote for them. And we don't necessarily have a majority of the people who see things that way. So there's that. And also, I would say, let's not generalize too much regarding leaders, because there's definitely a scale of sensitivity and compassion among the world's leaders has been throughout history. You know, some have been brutal tyrants, some have actually been sensitive people who've really tried to do a lot. You know, Gandhi was a leader. Well, Lincoln was a you know, great sensitive man at a time of crisis. When the Sandy Hook shooting happened, I remember Obama going and speaking to the parents and weeping and just, you know, feeling their grief. And you can't imagine all leaders being so sensitive. So you have to be a little bit nuanced in, in treating them or dealing with them. That's a fair point. But I'm talking about generally that most of the loudest voices right now, what I truly believe, and somehow this won't change within me, is that I do feel that world hunger could have been helped a long time ago. Oh, yeah. I believe I that mean, we spent trillions of, on yeah. the military. I mean, just think of Afghanistan, exactly. how much we've spent in Afghanistan. Now, if all that money, exactly. I, maybe there needed to be some kind of military intervention, but imagine if we had spent all that money on hunger and schools and healthcare and you know, just all the positive things, how much the people would appreciate it for one thing and how much they'd like us for doing that and what a difference it might have made in terms of the country. I mean, I, I'm, I'm being a little glib here because I'm not a world leader and I'm not sitting in their seats making these decisions, but I think we've got our priorities pretty screwed up most of the time. Yeah, that's what I feel. These are my views and my thoughts. I was on the other side. I died and came back. I know that we do not have a right to kill people. We do not have that right. As someone who's died and come back, that is one thing that's a blanket statement. Nobody has the right to kill another person. And if you went and killed someone or I went and killed someone, we'd be put in jail in a, in a minute. We'd be caught. We'd be put in jail. It's against the law to do it. But yet governments have the right to actually create armies and train young people to just go and kill nations and countries of innocent people. So in a way, like coming from the near death, everything I say, I'm coming from a near death perspective. I'm not coming from the 3D perspective of this world. I'm coming from that perspective. So the governments, they do not have a right to do that from the perspective I'm speaking about. And that's what I mean. They don't have the right, and yet they've taken it. And they've taken that right, and the reason they've done it is because they're able to convince us. And it's only when we don't allow ourselves to be convinced, when we realize 
that we can march to a different drama, that there is a higher power. And that's where I'm coming from. And that's where I was coming from when I wrote this book, Sensitive is the New Strong. It is actually about following that inner guidance within you, that inner voice, and following that and stop giving your power away to the loudest voices in this physical world. That's how we lose our power, is by giving our power to the loudest voices in this physical world, when all they have is that they're just extremely convincing, but they don't necessarily have ours or the world's best interest at heart. And so my point is, there are actually a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of us, who are very empathic, but you don't know that because we tend to second guess ourselves and we tend to give our power away to the louder voices. But we need to realize this is what we're doing. And when we realize that, oh, I don't need to keep listening to them. I have another voice. I have a connection with the other side. I have Guides, I am connected to source and source is communicating with me all the time. And when we start to realize that, that's when we come into our own power. And that's when we realize that actually most people in the world are sensitive and empathic. Most people in the world don't want wars. Most people in the world don't want to go out and fight and kill other people. We don't want it. Why are we doing it? Because some of the loudest voices among us are convincing us we need to. Right on. (laughs) (laughs) This came up in my interview last week with Stephen Cope. We were pondering, is there ever a situation in which force needs to be met with force? And then we brought up Hitler and, you know, what was happening in World War II as he started overtaking other countries and so on. And Gandhi apparently wanted to do a sort of a nonviolent response to him. And, and Neville Chamberlain was trying to negotiate peace. And, oh, he's not going to get any farther than he already has. But eventually he had to be stopped with force. And if you were prime minister of Great Britain at that time, what would you have done under circumstances like that? Or Roosevelt, if you were president of the U.S.? The way the world is right now, or even then, I wouldn't take on any of those positions of being prime minister or anything. The world, the way we are right now, we're not ready for an empath president. We're just not. What I like to do is bring about people's awareness so that an evolution can start. That's what I like to see happening an evolution. Because if you'd had an empath step up into a leadership role right now, they would be chewed up and destroyed. They really would. Because the loudest voices among us won't let that happen. What needs to happen is that it needs to start at the grassroots level. It needs to start from us, the people, who stop putting those people in power. It needs to start from there. I totally agree. It has to be grassroots. Yeah, because I also am not for force meeting force. I usually don't fight against what I don't like to see in the world. I actually try to expand on what I want to see more of. That's all I'm trying to do here is to say, hey, we do need more empath leaders. If one stepped up right now, though, they would be chewed up and spat out. So why don't we start cultivating an awareness of what we want to see and start 
creating it and spreading that awareness. It's really more like creating a different revolution or an evolution because whether you take COVID or not, no COVID, like even the way we were before COVID, if we continued the way we were going, we were on the brink of our own extinction. Mm. Because if you look at governments, what were they doing? All they were doing was comparing the size of their nuclear weapons. And it was about who has the bigger nuclear weapons. So basically, we were on the brink of our own extinction. Anyway, that's what that book was about. But we don't have to talk. We don't have to go in this uh, direction. What I was wanting to do in this particular book and in this transition of my life is to bring about awareness of how empathy is so much more important and how we need to redefine what the word strong means. So, for example, if you were to ask somebody, what does the word strong mean to you? And to most people, when you say strong, oh, it means somebody who's competitive, determined, who's ruthless, who's aggressive, who has brute force, who wins at all costs. And we look to those traits in our leaders and we admire those traits. We admire those traits in people, in leaders, in corporate heads, in sports. We, we admire them. But what happened is that uh, because we admire those traits, when kids are super sensitive, when they have too much empathy, when kids show emotions, they're told, don't be so sensitive, or a boy is told, man up, and boys don't cry. And so the traits of empathy and sensitivity and all these are seen as weaknesses. So what I was trying to show in this book is that maybe we need to redefine the word strength and that somebody who is empathic is actually someone who's strong because it's a needed trait in the world. You just made a beautiful point previously, and, and that is that if an empath got into a, a leadership position, he'd be chewed, he or she would be chewed up. So it begs the question, well, how can we create a quality in collective consciousness that would actually transform things from the bottom up, from the grassroots level, such that an empath could be a appropriate representative of collective consciousness and not be chewed up and use his or her authority to do all kinds of good things in the world. I think at this point, Jesus Christ could be made president and he would be chewed up, you know, because the whole way the government works is so, is so messed up. You know, he would and Gandhi, yeah, Gandhi any of those people. Up and, yeah, yeah, exactly. The way I would do it from a grassroots level, it would start with education. Yeah, which you're it doing, would start actually. With, and that's what I try to do. I just try to be a, a spokesperson or just want to start a evolution or a revolution on this. It would start with education. It would start with parents educating the kids. It would start with schools educating their kids and redefining what the word strong means. It would mean teaching kids to be more compassionate, to teaching them to be more empathic and rewarding them for being empathic as opposed to rewarding them for being competitive and winning. It would be to really tip the scales in the favor of empathy over winning at all costs. It would be to tip the scales and rewarding collaboration as opposed to competition. Right now, everything is about competition, even in schools. But imagine if in schools, it was collaboration was ingrained and you were rewarded not for winning and competing, but for 
collaborating. What I would do if it was up to me, I would have kids learn, for example, how to be like, let's say I would say for one week, you're going to be in a wheelchair or for a month, you're going to learn how to get around your life and your world as a paraplegic. Yeah. What does it feel like? You know, things like that. Or blindfolded so then or something. Yeah. Or blindfolded. So you're a blind person. How do you navigate the world? What will happen? Because kids are so creative. Kids who can have that experience, they will grow up creating and inventing ways to make the world an easier place for those who are suffering if they can get to actually experience a little bit of that as part of their education. I would definitely make empathy a huge part of the curriculum if it was up to me. That's what I would do. I would be shaping future leaders and I would be shaping future values of what it means to be strong. I would be redefining what is actually held in high esteem. You can't do it right now, like put an empath leader right now, because the people who are already in there are way too entrenched in the old paradigm. But if you want to change the paradigm, it starts with educating the young. I think one promising thing also that should be part of the mix is some kind of spiritual practice for the kids. I have friends who people I've interviewed and other friends who are teaching meditation and other such things in schools and very often in inner city schools. And they see these huge transformations in terms of reduced violence and all the stuff that happens or in prisons. I mean, they teach meditation courses in prisons sometimes and with a bunch of people gathered together who ordinarily wouldn't close their eyes in each other's presence because they belong to rival gangs. But then it has such a transformative effect on them that they all become friends. And, and then the kids in schools, their grades are going up. So the main reason that your NDE transformed you, I think, was that you tapped into a, a deep inner reservoir that everyone has within them, but that very few people access. And you've maintained a continuous contact with that reservoir. And there are obviously spiritual practices that can enable you to do that without having nearly to die, you know, without having to go through something like you went through. Exactly. And, and you can start it from a young age and culture it throughout your life. Yes, and the reason I share everything that happened in my experience and the reason I write books and do videos and all is because I don't want people to have to go through what I went through. Yeah. Because I can see so clearly that we could all have a different life, a different world, but I just have a different way of seeing it. And all it takes is a slight shift in focus. It's not something that people need to die to be able to understand. That's what I believe. That's why I share it. And it's not something either where we would have to completely revamp the entire educational system or something. We could just introduce something in there which would enable people to begin tapping into that inner potential. And then yeah. the changes would ripple out from that. And things would change in the curriculum and things would change in the prison system and so on in the healthcare system once that inner, exactly. inner reservoir was being contacted adequately. Yes, exactly. You know, kids, when they're young, when they're born, they're so intuitive and they're so connected, but that gets conditioned out of them and they're told it's your imagination and don't be so sensitive and all. So instead of doing that, it would actually be cultivated 
they would actually be encouraged to use their imaginations and they would be encouraged to stay connected to the other side and encouraged to be intuitive and so on. The next thought that comes to mind, it's not, not a big jump from what we're talking about, is you're talking about being super sensitive, and that, that's a good thing, but also having the strength so that it doesn't overwhelm you or doesn't um, adversely influence you. Maybe we should talk a little bit more about how to get the strength on a par with the sensitivity and perhaps being able to actually become more sensitive and yet commensurately more strong so that we can just be a gift to the world uh, and not be victimized in the process. Yes. One of the things that I ask people to do is, well, there's many things, there's many tools, is ask yourself, are you someone who gives and gives of yourself? And do you have trouble receiving? A lot of people who are empaths and who are super sensitive, they do have trouble receiving and they tend to believe that it's better to give than to receive. Of course, it's great to give. It is. But if you don't allow yourself to receive, you can become completely depleted because receiving doesn't mean just receiving from other people. It even means receiving from source, yeah. receiving from the universe. Uh, yes. Yeah. When you, as soon as you said receiving, I was thinking, yes, from source. That's, that's where you got <laughs> to make sure that's in, in the process. Exactly. And you really do. And if it means building practices every day where you can get replenished and rejuvenated, then you have to do it. And very often I get people arguing with me and saying, oh, but I don't have time and I have to, I have kids and I have this going on and I have my job. And I say, yeah, but you will get depleted if you don't allow yourself to receive, if you don't make time to recharge your batteries. And you have to do things, whether it's like soak in a bathtub or meditate or go for a walk in nature or listen to music or, you know, do whatever it is that recharges you. Go watch a movie, go out with friends, go laugh and have dinner with people you love. But you have to do it. And you have to do it consciously, do something every day. Don't let it be something like, oh, after I have finished everything and done everything I can for everyone else, then I will take care of me. No, don't do that because that was the mistake I made. And when people argue with me and say, no, but I don't have time and you don't understand, I have to pay the bills and I have to work so that I can put food on the table. And I say, look, It'll be even worse if your body starts to tell you, if your body starts to show symptoms telling you that you need to take care of yourself. Don't wait until your body does that. So please stop arguing for, in favor of continuing to live the life that you're not liking. <laughs> and a lot of people do that. They're like living this life that they don't like. They're struggling. They're tired. They don't have enough money. And then when... People say that you need to take time out. You need to take care of yourself. You need to connect with your higher self. Immediately, they start arguing with you and saying, I can't do that. I don't have time. And, I'm, and I always say to them, you're arguing for living that life that you don't like. Yeah, back when I used to so, teach meditation, if people said, I don't have time, I, I would say, then time has you. And the more you say you don't have time, the more it means you need to do this. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily have to take half your day. I mean, you can do things that no. are very rejuvenating in a short amount of time. You know, a little meditation, a little of some of the things you mentioned. It's kind of like, 
let's say you're going to go shopping all day and you need money. Well, it only takes a few minutes to go to the bank and get a bunch of money. And then you can spend hours in the market with the money you got. So that's just a metaphor. Yes. Or you want, you want to shoot an arrow at a target. If you just kind of let go of the arrow, it'll drop on the ground. You have to pull it back on the bow and then it get, it'll have momentum for going forward. So a little bit of preparation. You come back into the field yeah. of activity for hours on end with rejuvenated. You know, your batteries are charged. Exactly. Exactly right. So you don't have to spend like a whole lot of time. But what happens, what I find is that when I take time out for myself to do stuff for myself, what it does is that I slow down. You know, it's more like for me, it's a ritual of either I go and make myself a nice cup of tea and I sit down, I'll read a book, I'll write in my journal. And when I slow down, it feels like time slows down. And I find I actually end up having more time on my hands than I thought I did. That's a good point. If you take the time to recharge, you actually end up with more time in the day than if you yes. hadn't recharged. So if, if a person feels they don't have time, okay, say fine, then do this and you'll actually get more time. You also not only have more energy, but you usually tend to act in a more coherent, orderly fashion. So you end up doing more with less effort or doing something that would ordinarily take two hours in one hour like that. Exactly. And you become much more efficient when your batteries are recharged, when you take the time to regroup, recharge, you also become more intuitive when you take time out. When you're just doing, doing, doing and busy just getting things done, you lose your intuition because your space, your headspace is so full. The intuition, the downloads, there's no space for them to, to reach you. So the more that you can take gaps of time, the more intuitive you become. Yeah. And actually, on that point, if you've lost your intuitive sense of the right course of action, you might spend half your day doing something that turns out to be a total waste of time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the thing is that if you don't take that time out to recharge and to connect with your intuition, you could have an amazing opportunity that is trying to knock on your door, but you're just not seeing it because you're so busy, busy, busy getting things done and getting things off your plate. I just want to remind people that if you have a question about what we're saying here, you can send it in through the forum on the upcoming interviews page on batcap.com. How do you know if you are an empath? I mean, some, a lot of people, I hear them saying, I'm an empath. Are they really? Or how do you know if you are? And I imagine that there are degrees of empathicness, if that's a word, um, and it's not an on-off, black-and-white situation. But... Yeah. And how do you know if you are one? And should can you become one if you're not? Should you want to become one? Would it be desirable and possible for everyone to be one if there were a way of turning that on? There's a bunch of questions in there. One is, I've got a test, a little questionnaire on my website, which helps people to determine if they're an empath or not. I don't think it's possible to become one if you are not innately an empath. And for the people who are empaths, you know, I think it's desirable to be an empath if everybody around you is an empath. But if everybody around you is not, and they are not even highly sensitive, but lower down on the scale, then empaths struggle. Empaths struggle if they are working in an environment or living in an environment 
or in a community where the people around them are not empaths. Empaths are what I call six sensory beings. There's a whole other sense that is very strong to them that is invisible to other people. And because it's very strong to them, it's as strong as your sense of smell or sight or taste or touch. And so empaths are like six sensory beings, but the world has been designed for five sensory beings. It's a five sensory world. So empaths very often struggle until they learn that they are empaths and they learn that having that sixth sense is a gift. Then, And that's actually the crux of my book, Sensitive is the New Strong. It's about teaching empaths that actually what you have is a gift. Many empaths wish they were not empaths and wish they could get rid of that trait only because we're living in a world that doesn't embrace that sixth sense. But once you learn that what it is and that and you embrace it and you know it's a gift, then it becomes wonderful. I don't think that it's possible for somebody who is innately on the lower end of the scale to become an empath. I think it is possible for people who are anywhere in the mid-range upwards to cultivate more empathy, which is what I was alluding to with education. And the more empathy that people have, the easier it becomes even for empaths to integrate with people who have empathy. I'm thinking of some examples here. For instance, the Birdman of Alcatraz, who Burt Lancaster played in a movie. He was a murderer serving a life sentence in Alcatraz prison. And he shifted through his love of birds. Some little bird flew in his window and became one of the world's experts on birds. Or the guy who wrote Amazing Grace was involved in the slave trade. And somehow he woke up to the horror of what he had been doing and ended up dedicating his life to God. Or Valmiki in the Ramayana, who wrote the Ramayana, was a murderer and highway robber, and, and he had a big turnaround. So there are examples of people who were really sort of at the extreme end of cruelty and hardness. The Apostle Paul, who was previously Saul, a persecutor of Christians, became one of the greatest representatives of Christ. So people do turn around. St. Francis, he, yeah. he had a big turnaround. Yeah, absolutely. And possibly they were born with those qualities, but those qualities were buried. Because I'm not actually a, a psychologist or anyone like, for example, Elaine Aaron, I've never actually studied whether people are born with these traits, whether it's nature or nurture. So I don't know that for sure. So it could be that people turn around, but empath per se, going back to just purely empaths, as the way that Elaine Aaron and Judith Orloff explain empaths is a trait where you absorb the emotions of other people. So that's a separate thing, at least I think, from, say, the people whose lives have turned around. Because one of the things I do believe to, to what you're saying, I completely agree with you. Like, for example, I believe that in every, let's say, prison structure, there are probably a ton of people there who regret everything they did, you know, even in the highest security prison filled with murderers, I bet you there are a lot of people in there who, if they received the right amount of love and nurturing, would never have chosen the life they chose. 
And so when they get an awakening, it turns them around. I truly believe that. I believe everybody deserves a second chance. Everybody deserves a second chance. So everything you're saying, 100%, I'm with you and I agree with you. Everybody can turn around in that sense. But if we're talking strictly about empaths, the way that I discovered from Elaine Aaron and Judith Orlov, it seems it's something you're innately either born with or not. And it's this inclination. It's like basically the way they describe it is that an empath is a sponge. And as a sponge, they cannot differentiate their energy and their emotions from the other person's energy or emotions. So I guess if I take their description and I related to it myself, because this is why I wrote the book, it's because when I discovered, when somebody said to me, you're an empath, because they saw I was struggling with something and they said, oh, I think you're an empath. And I went and looked it up and I was like, whoa, I am. Oh my God, now I understand. So these people who had the turnaround that we're talking about, who woke up to love, they are not necessarily empaths per se. They just woke up to something, to enlightenment, to suddenly realizing, oh my God, life can be different. An empath very specifically is somebody who, when you're in a room, you absorb the energies of everyone around you. So if you're in a room of people who are feeling depressed, you can walk away feeling depressed and not understanding why you're feeling depressed. But it's because you've just picked up the energy of everybody in the room. And that, from what I've read, is something that you either are or you aren't. That's and good. I know uh, for sure that I am, but I can't answer whether it's something that people can cultivate or not. But uh, I know that I have been for my entire life but I didn't know I was. And because I discovered that it was a thing, I was like, oh my God, I didn't know there was a thing as being an empath. And why I said it was a sixth sensory thing is because for an empath, the emotions, the energy of other people is real. It's a real thing. They can actually feel it as clearly as they can see things, touch things. So I'm glad you brought up what you did because it allowed me to clarify this. From my understanding, some people are wired that way or they aren't. And so I realized that it was because I'm wired that way that I even got sick in the first place. Yeah. I was taking on stuff that I didn't even know was mine. Well, I'm glad you clarified that because even though I read your entire book, I was still thinking of empath as just really sensitive people, like all saints would fall into the category of empaths. But no, you no, not so necessarily. you could have Ramana Maharshi sitting in a room full of depressed people. He's not going to get depressed, you know, even though yes. he might be you know, one of the most sensitive people on the planet. But an empath is specifically refers to somebody who absorbs it like a sponge, like you just said. Yes, exactly. I'm so glad we clarified that. So in the same way, it's highly possible that Gandhi was not an empath. Mm -hmm. But yet I think... Or that Jesus wasn't an empath, you know. It's possible Jesus wasn't. But it is possible that Mother Teresa was because she couldn't rest. And, and again, I'm not sure, but I'm just saying from what little I know is that she possibly was because she couldn't rest until every single person, individual person, 
was fed or taken care of because it bothered her. It was like she felt she was out there in the streets of Calcutta and she was absorbing their pain and she couldn't rest until each one's pain was taken care of. And she believed, because she was a Christian, she believed that each of these people could only be saved through Jesus Christ. She felt this need that she had to save every single one of them. And she couldn't rest until she did that for each person. She could possibly be an empath. Again, I'm just guessing, but I I just felt that that nature of her needing to rescue. Empaths are rescuers. They cannot bear to see a person suffering because they absorb the energy of the person suffering. And then even if the person doesn't ask for help, an empath will actually reach out and help a person even when they don't ask for it because they're actually feeling the suffering of that person. It's kind of a fine point because it's really good to be sensitive to the suffering of of others and try to alleviate it. But the distinction seems to be that, you know, on the one hand, a saint might alleviate it, but not at his own expense. Whereas the empath, something is drained or something is lost or, you know, there's some kind of vulnerability to them that um, takes a toll. Yes, if they don't realize it, correct. If they don't if they are an empath and have not yet realized they are an empath, yes, yeah. it can take a toll. Okay, and if they have realized an empath, maybe we cover this some, but maybe not completely, what can they do to still be an empath, since they have no choice in that, but to not have it take a toll on them? So there are many things they can do, and one of the things I covered earlier was that they have to allow downtime. themselves to receive. Yeah, receive. Downtime. They have to have downtime. They have to tune in. So for an empath, it's super important to get in touch with their own higher self, source, whatever you want to call it. Like they have to get in touch with their own soul source. And it's super important, more important than for anyone else, because if they don't do that, they end up giving their power away to other people. Mm -hmm. And that's what drains them. An empath's biggest drain is this constant it's a it's a constant need to alleviate other people's pain but what happens is that empaths also have a tendency of not wanting to disappoint people so when you're out there trying to be there for everyone in the outside world you neglect yourself what you need to do is you need to spend time to listen to your higher voice as opposed to listening to all the voices on the outside world. So it's very important for an empath to do that. When they do that, they can become very, very powerful. And empaths are highly intuitive. They have to just learn to differentiate, like if uh, differentiate the energies of other people from their own. So if you walk into a room, you have to ask yourself, okay, how does this room feel? And you have to say to yourself, this is not my energy. And you have to say that, um, do I want to be here? Do I have the energy to uplift the room? If not, it's best I leave, uplift my own energy, and then come back if I wish after I've uplifted my own energy. Yeah, that's good. I get the impression, and you probably even sort of said it in your book, that your empathicness led to your cancer. Yes, yeah, it did. You weren't... And I didn't realize that at the time. Right. 
Is there any evidence that you're aware of that empaths are more susceptible to disease? There isn't any clinical evidence, mm-hmm. but from my own audiences, from my own, just me asking people, I know that from the people who are attracted to my work, they all relate to what I say. Because usually clinical evidence is very narrow because it's usually clinical evidence is always funded by pharmaceutical. So I ask my audiences on my videos and my online platform and my events, and I'm always asking them, do you relate to being an empath? These are the traits. And then I explain to them what it means. And then they raise their hands. And then I ask them, how many of you feel run down when this and this happens? How many of you feel stressed? How many? So I have my own way of asking them. And I do find that empaths tend to be more vulnerable and sensitive to getting physical symptoms and attracting physical illnesses. But I don't want to say that to scare them because on the good news side, the good side is that when you are aware of this, you can also reverse it and you can also heal because when you start to become aware of what it is that's causing the physical issues in your body. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes think of cigarette smoking, for instance. I did it a little bit when I was a teenager, but at this point, if I were to just take one puff on a cigarette, it would be horrendous. Um, but I think, you know, how could you be so insensitive to the effect like that something like that is having on your body? And again, when I, you know, used to teach meditation, a lot of times people would start and then habits like that would just drop off because they suddenly started to become aware of the influence it was having. They were oblivious to it before. Yeah, exactly. You start to become more aware. And so really it's it's just about being aware. Like sometimes when I do a talk or a video or something that is specifically targeted at empaths, first, if they've taken a test and determined that they are an empath, then they would be interested in, say, watching that video or coming to that seminar. And then, then really what I do is I speak to them about the challenges and the gifts of being an empath and the challenges being that we have a tendency to absorb the energies. And then I ask them, how did your body feel after that incident? How did it feel? Uh, and tell me, when did your body feel good? When did it feel bad? And so on. So I personally feel that I have seen enough evidence that people who are empaths, their bodies tend to be more sensitive to physical symptoms. Personally, I also believe, and this doesn't exist at the moment, but I believe that empaths, when they have physical symptoms, I believe that they would do better if they had a different kind of treatment, like instead of the typical pharmaceutical medical treatment, but if they went for something more, I don't like to call it alternative, but maybe more complementary, like I feel that other types of treatment, like whether it's homeopathy, whether it's neuroemotional technique, acupuncture, all these things, I feel are far more effective for empaths than pharmaceuticals are. But that's my belief, and uh, I don't want people who to who feel that they need medicine to not go for it. So sure. please yeah. do what 
you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they might be more effective for empaths than they would be for non-empaths, you know, because non-empaths might not have the neurophysiological subtlety to be as sensitive to the effects of those things. Exactly, exactly right. When I was reading your book and I got to the test on the you know, whether or not you're an empath, I read it out loud, and um, Irene and I both tried to answer the questions, and here's a question from her. She said, taking the test in your book for empathic tendencies, I found that with some questions, I would give myself a 20 or a 30 on a scale of 1 to 10, (laughs) while with others, I would (laughs) give myself a 0. Not all highly sensitive people have the same areas developed, in other words. Some points I so strongly related to, while others not at all. Can you speak about that? Yes, so the test is not like a perfect test, but I would say that if you scored a zero on several of them, like quite a few, and even if you scored a 20 out of 10 for a few of them, I would say that you're a highly sensitive person, but probably not an empath. If there were more than six or 10 that you scored a zero on, that would already mean that you're not an empath, even if you scored as the second level, even if your result came as the second level of empath, but the fact that you were an absolute did not relate to these traits at all, but totally related to these other traits, like you would give a 20, I would say that you're more leaning towards not being an empath. People who are empaths, the ones that they score a no on, there's usually a little bit of a tendency of, yeah, I might be. No, I'm going to give me a no on that. Yeah, I might be, but I'm going to give me a no on that. There's a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Since I just asked you a question from someone else, I think I'll ask you a few more that have come in, and then we'll get back to talking about other stuff. Here's one from uh, Jay in Victoria, British Columbia. This is the one that made her laugh a minute ago. My spiritual evolution seems to be growing at a glacial pace. Why do some people have spiritual growth in leaps and bounds, and people like me don't seem to be making any spiritual progress? Should I try to have a near-death experience? (laughs) Definitely don't try to have a near-death experience. (laughs) Do not do that. I guess everybody just has their own pace. My sense is you could be trying too hard, possibly. Just let it go. Don't look for a spiritual experience. Just live life. That's the thing. When you look for something, it eludes you. Just live life and live every moment the best you can, and that's all you're really expected to do. Just make the best of every moment. Yeah. Also, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and uh, which is a kind of a corny cliche that people say too often. But we can't storm the gates of heaven, so to speak. And um, really, spiritual development is a lifelong process, maybe a lives-long process. And sometimes people try to say, okay, well, I, yeah, I'm i going to take a heavy dose of LSD or something. She goes, I just want to break through. Maybe slow and steady wins the race. And there are obviously, there are all kinds of different techniques and practices. And if a person isn't doing anything and is expecting to undergo some kind of growth, then it it may not happen. But if they do something and it doesn't seem to be working, then maybe try something else. Yes, exactly. Try something different. Go out for a walk in nature, you know, meditate, listen to music that really moves you. But don't do it for, I think it's because also if we're doing it for the purpose of a spiritual awakening, then that act in itself kind of eludes it uh, from us. 
do it just because you want to do it, because it brings you pleasure, because you love to do it. Because what is spiritual awakening, really? Yeah. It is just about living in the moment. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I think if something actually is leading toward uh, an eventual spiritual awakening, then the light is going to get brighter as you move towards the source. And you're going to sort of have positive reinforcement as you go along that the thing you're doing is leading you in that direction. It's not like you're just going to be miserable and struggling and all of a sudden, boom, you're enlightened. Exactly. Here's a question that came in again from British Columbia. This from Jenny in Nanaimo. After reading Sensitive is the New Strong, I wondered how you managed to form the healthy, thriving partnership you seem to have with Danny. Most of your self-awareness and course corrections came after the NDE, yet you were already married to Danny. How did you avoid the empath falling for a narcissist trap that you speak about? Because I guess Danny's not not a narcissist, that's why. Yes. That's a great question. And the thing is, previously, I had definitely attracted narcissists. I had a definitely, I'm thinking of them now as we speak. But what happened is that when I attracted Danny, interestingly, I was at a really, really good place in my life, like a really probably the best place I'd been in my life before the NDE, where I had decided that I was perfect being single. And that's the irony that happens is that up until then, I was really wanting a relationship and was attracting all the wrong people, the narcissists, I was being the doormat, I was doing all the stuff that doormats do, but had been hurt enough, broken uh, up with people enough times, ran away from an arranged marriage, been through it all, been ostracized by my community. And now had to build my life up again myself. And so I had gone through a a huge transition and was at this place where I had this amazing job, amazing place of work. I was being paid a really good amount of money, felt really independent. I was traveling, loving what I did. I was like just in this great, great place in my life. And I'd made a commitment to myself that I am not going to throw this away for some man. Being with a man, I had to get over the fact that I needed a man in my life because that was part of my cultural conditioning. And I had created the life I wanted now as a single person. I really was in this amazing place. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that Danny came into my life at that time because I had been through so much heartbreak and heartache that when Danny came into my life, I kind of felt that, oh, I'm not going to let a man bring me down now and take this away. So in a way, without trying to, and this is not normal for a doormat empath, in a way, I kind of had set up this standard or this bar where he had to meet this if he wanted to be in my life. And so it was the perfect timing that I met him. Prior to that, you know, when I ran away from an arranged marriage, people even have said to me, if you were such a doormat, how is it that you had the courage or the strength to run away from an arranged marriage that you knew didn't suit you? And that is actually a typical empath slash doormat trait. Basically, I'd said yes to my parents for an arranged marriage because I didn't want to displease them. I didn't want to say no. 
I went through with all these things, months of setting up the whole Indian wedding and relatives flying in from all over the world for the wedding. And I lived in Hong Kong. He lived in another country um, to protect him. I won't say where, but we all flew to India to have the wedding. And, and it was at the last minute that I ran away. So people said, wow, you must have had a lot of courage. No, it's a typical empath thing where you can't say no, you can't say no until something builds up to becoming so big that you're like, oh God, no, I can't go through with it. And so that's when you say no and you create an even bigger mess than had you said no right in the beginning. It's that inability to say no that caused the big mess, the repercussions I then had to deal with within my culture for running away. But I knew from the onset it wasn't right for me. I knew from the beginning, but I couldn't say no. Couldn't nip it in the bud. Here's another question. This is from Per, P-E-R, in Stockholm. I lost my 14-year-old son to leukemia a year ago and have since found comfort in your podcast. I now believe that we have a life contract, but also that mistakes and accidents can happen that are not according to plan. I have a hard time understanding the pain and suffering like cancer taken out on a young, sensitive, gentle soul. I'm really sorry to hear that. And the key in what you said is that he's a young, sensitive, gentle soul. It sounds to me like he was too good for this world. He really was. There is nothing more painful than losing your own child. That is really, really awful. But he has, I know, brought with him a whole bunch of gifts that he's left you and your family with. But his contract was probably just that, to be there for that long. And he has done what he need, needed to have done. And he's fulfilled his purpose. And this is the thing. Our world sometimes is too harsh for beautiful, young, gentle souls. I'm feeling that his energy was just too pure and too beautiful. My heart goes out to you. And what you and your family need to do is just do whatever you need to do to heal your own hearts. And know, though, that he is absolutely fine. He's in a beautiful place. He's in a safe space. He is with loved ones. He's still there. He's still watching over you. And he wants you to be happy again. He wants you to find your joy again. So I'm sending you so much love. Beautiful. Thank you. Sometimes when a friend's loved one dies, I'll encourage them to read a few NDE books. Because for me, yeah. reading those books, I've been reading them since the 90s even though I haven't really had too many people close to me die, but somehow it just thins the veil between this side and the other side when I read those books. I just get a, a more heightened feeling of the reality and the presence of those other dimensions, and it enables me to take the circumstances of this life a little bit less seriously. Not irresponsibly, but just sort of to see through the density of it and realize that these other dimensions are very much here and we're just not open to them. Yes, 100%. I agree with you. Exactly. Um, and that's good advice to tell somebody who's grieving is read about NDEs. Yeah. We have a categorical index on BatGap and there is an NDE category if some people want to listen to some of those discussions. 
So I have about half an hour left or so, and I actually have about three pages worth of notes left that we haven't covered, but I want to make sure that we cover everything that you want to cover. So rather than me digging out something from the notes right now, is is there sort of anything that comes to mind that you feel we haven't talked about yet that we should? I've been enjoying everything that we've been covering so far. I would be happy for you to just ask me any of the questions, any absolutely any of the questions in your notes. Yeah, they're not all questions. A lot of it is just notes from your book. But let's see here. What have I got? Um, well, here's a little quote that I liked. I think this was in your book, and I just wrote it down. The bigger challenge isn't in having a spiritually transcendent experience, but in integrating that experience into our earthly life once we return. And that's so true, because even when I had my near-death experience and I came back into this world, I realized that it was going to be really, really hard shortly after I came back, that is. You know, because when I came back, I was euphoric. I wanted to share what happened with everybody. I thought people would be interested to know. I even thought the medical people would be interested to know because my body healed. But I realized that when you share something like that, you're not just going to get people who are interested. You're also going to get people who are debunkers and naysayers who are going to push back against what you're saying or or debunk what you're saying. And so I realized that very quickly that naysayers and debunkers, they don't just disbelieve you and walk on. They actually engage you and almost try to take the experience or the miracle away from you. They try to convince you of why it's not the case, why it couldn't have happened, why it's not true. And so I encountered a lot of people like that. And that's when I realized, wow, if people are so convinced, they are so convinced that it's not true, and they need to go around convincing people, it's really hard when you live in a world of people like that, to integrate an experience like this. Let's say somebody in a community like that were to have an experience, they would not be able to talk about it. You cannot talk about it because when you do, you're dealing with people who are so convinced that such a thing cannot happen that you start to doubt yourself. And that's when I realized that I had to be really, really discerning as to not only who I shared my experience with, that was big, I couldn't share it with everybody. So I started holding back and becoming really discerning. But also, who I shared the way I was now living my life with, it's I had to be discerning who I would speak to about my new values and my new ways of viewing the world. So it was super interesting because for a few years there, I wasn't prepared to share my story publicly because I realized the harder part would be to integrate it if the public knew and I would be attracting a lot more naysayers and and debunkers. But then Wayne Dyer discovered my story and I actually even told him about my hesitation of sharing my story. And he said, Don't focus on the naysayers, focus on the people who will be helped by hearing your story. And that really helped me. That helped me a lot 
And he said, there will be naysayers. Of course there will. There will be people who will debunk you and who will try to argue with you. Don't engage with them. Just engage with the people who really value what you're saying and who feel like you're helping them and keep focusing on them. So that's helped me, but it's not always easy because naysayers and debunkers, they can catch you unawares and get into your life in different ways, you know, now with social media and all of this. Yeah. A couple of quotes from Jesus come to mind. One is, cast ye not your pearls before swine, lest they turn again and rend you. But then on the other hand, he said, don't hide your light under a bushel. So you have to let it shine, but you might be a, want to be selective as to where you shine it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's the trick as we navigate this world. And this is why I say it's really important. It's so important for you to connect with your higher self, because if you don't have that strong connection, it's very, very easy for you to then fall into believing the naysayers and the debunkers who say, oh, this is all woo woo or this is unrealistic. It's very easy to fall into that and to allow people to take away that gift of whatever it is, whether it's the gift of awakening or enlightenment or the miracle of a healing, it's very easy to have people actually make you believe that it was your imagination. It didn't really happen or whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I think one thing that motivates naysayers and also proselytizers, religious fundamentalists who want to change people to their way of thinking, is that they have an inner doubt and you challenge it by your existence, you know, by your experience. So, you know, if they could just, you know, bust your bubble, then they would somehow not feel threatened. And it happens a lot in the whole scientific world. There's these guys like Rupert Sheldrake and, and others who are trying to show that consciousness is fundamental and, and the material world arises from it rather than consciousness just being a product of the brain. And they get a lot of blowback, you know, from materialists who feel that, you know, this is a, a material universe, sort of meaningless and random and all that, and we're just kind of biological robots. Because I think those people must on some level deeply intuit that Rupert and, and these other people are right, but it would totally turn their world upside down to accept it. Everything they've spent their life doing in many cases would be invalidated or undermined, upset. Yeah, you're 100% right. I'm totally with you. And, and a lot of people who actually bring a broader form of science into this conversation get debunked exactly as you said, like Rupert Sheldrake, because the materialist view of science is very, very narrow. I deal with it on two levels. One is on this level of when speaking about consciousness, dealing with the materialist's view of science, and when I'm speaking about illness, and when I speak about how I know, I, I never make a blanket statement, but I know that for me, I am 100% sure that the illness for me was caused purely because of the fact that I was absorbing other people's energies and how I didn't value myself and all that. And I know it healed because I suddenly realized, oh, wow, I am loved. I am. And so I know what it was for me. So then when I speak about that, I deal with the narrow medical science view. That's also a very narrow view of science. When you're talking about medical science, I am all for science. But I think that true science 
is actually much broader than what's being presented to us by the medical pharmaceutical industry. And it's the same with the materialists. As most people are aware, there's been a big debate about health care in the United States for a long time. And people like Bernie Sanders have been saying, you know, we should have universal health care. And other people say, well, we can't afford it and so on. And in a way, I agree with both because I don't think we can afford it unless people are somehow taught to be more healthy. <laughs> you know, if people just go on doing what they're doing and then we pay for it once they get sick. That's unaffordable. There needs to be a kind of a two pronged approach. I'm in 100% agreement with you in that. But one of the things that annoyed me during the whole pandemic is why weren't they telling people that you need to eat healthier, you need to take vitamin D? That's what they should have been telling everyone instead of just making them all freak out and panic and all that stuff. But everybody should have been told that you need to get sunshine, you need to exercise more, and this is what you need to do to build up your immune system. But no, that wasn't happening, whereas people could have helped themselves as well. It's a partnership. It's a partnership. It's not a one-way thing where you can trash your body and then go and get help from the medical pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, so what we're touching on here is good. I mean, what we're saying, I think, is that don't be black and white about it. There's good in this area and good in this area and just take the best of all of it and uh, you'll have the best result. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And our bodies are actually more resilient and powerful than we have been led to believe they are. Sure. I mean, look what happened to you. <laughs> um, are you aware of many people who, uh, you know, have come to your seminars or read your books or gotten in touch with you who consequently underwent a health transformation as dramatic as yours was? I get people writing to me all the time who say that they believe they healed because they follow my work and so they were inspired and, and because it gave them hope. So I do get a lot of people writing and sharing that with me. And so people do have their miracles and it's helped them a lot to know that it can happen. It's opened up their mind to know that it can happen because I honestly believe that, and this is particularly for people who are sensitive and who are empaths, that empaths and sensitive people, we are what I call highly suggestible. What I mean by that is that if the doctor tells you that your chances of survival are slim, then that's what you're going to experience. You're going to be afraid of death and, and, and you're probably not going to survive. Very often doctors unknowingly, without meaning to, can actually give someone a death sentence by saying you only have three months to live. And I personally think that literally that a doctor giving somebody a prognosis like that should actually be outlawed. I really think so because I think that is a death sentence for a sensitive person. And it actually shocks me that doctors can still do that. I have people write to me all the time and say that uh, I've been told blah, blah, blah. My doctor said what? And I always tell them that nobody can tell you uh, when you're going to die. Look what happened to me. I had hours to live. And then I take them through some steps of how they need to start turning their life around. And literally, it's like turn it around one degree a day, one degree, just improve your life by 1% each day, just 1%, whether it's digging out 
old emotional trauma and releasing it, whether it's changing your diet a little bit, whether it's exercising a little bit. But very often it really is about digging out the stress, releasing the stress. And they do turn around and so many people have written to me and said, it's because I believed it. It's because I believed it. Whereas when I was seeing the doctor, I was in so much fear of dying. Yeah. Referencing Jesus again. I mean, he was, in a lot of cases, he said, well, this, you know, you were healed because you believed you could be. The person's attitude mattered. Yes, they have to believe it. So there's a couple of things I, I tell them is that, first of all, you have to believe that your body is more powerful than you have been led to believe. Your body can heal. The second thing is that you need to have a will to live, a reason to live. If you have lost your will to live, like if you hate your life, if you hated the life you were living before you got sick, then that's the reason you got sick because you hated your life. And so your body developed these symptoms. So what you have to do is you're not fighting the symptoms. You're trying to create a life that you love. If you loved your life, your body probably wouldn't have developed these symptoms. So what you have to do, your work, is to now figure out how to get out of whatever situation you're in that has caused this life that you hate and create a life you love at the same time while you're working on physically healing the symptoms. That's a great point. That also references back to last week's interview all about Dharma. You know, if you're really in your Dharma, you love it. You don't feel like what you're doing is work. Every day is wonderful. You can't wait to jump out of bed in the morning. Yes. No fatigue. Yeah, that's what it is. You have to have a reason for living. Like, for example, you remember Carrie Fisher, the actress. Yeah. She died. And her mother is... Uh, Who's Carrie Fisher's also mother? Also famous... Uh, Famous actress. It'll come to her. Carrie Fisher played Princess yes. Leia in Star Wars, and her, she and her mother Sorry. died within days of each other. One day. Google it. I mean, Google um, it. No, I just <laughs> forgotten Debbie it. Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Debbie Reynolds literally died the next day yeah. after her daughter died. Death is not just random. Either we've decided before we came here, we have a contract, this is when we're going to go, or we've completed our purpose, and that's when we go. If Carrie Fisher lived longer, Debbie Reynolds would have lived longer. Yeah. This she often happens with married couples, too. One dies and then, boom, the other one dies shortly. Exactly. They lose their purpose and their will to live. Somebody I know in my, back in my home country of Hong Kong, literally just uh, less than a week ago, last weekend, she passed away. And I was really shocked because I saw on one of my friend's Facebook page, uh, there was a RIP, rest in peace to her. Um, her name's Rennie. I was really surprised. So I texted my friend in Hong Kong and I said, what happened to her? And she said, oh, you know, COVID wiped out her business and she still had to pay her rent and she has her kids and she just lost her will to live. She was so stressed out. She lost her will to live. And last weekend, she just passed away in her sleep. And during that time, while she was really stressed out, she developed a lot of physical symptoms and she was going to the doctor all the time for these physical symptoms, whether it was rheumatoid arthritis or eczema or whatever. But the point is, the medical doctor is only looking at her physical symptoms and helping her ma manage her symptoms. What she needed was someone to really help talk her through everything else that was going on, her losing her will to live, her business failing, her debt. 
She needed a path to get out of that if she was going to regain her will to live. And it's well known that certain things can be very effective in helping to deal with stress. Exercise is tremendous. Meditation is, is tremendous. And, you know, if you have those things, you know, despite the severity of your circumstances, you at least have a fighting chance of improving the circumstances. And I mean, you could, you could be happy even in the, in the midst of such circumstances if you're in tune enough with your inner resources and, and very much, you know, will have the will to continue living. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing, like even things like that can happen. But yeah, if you have enough internal resources, you just take it as, okay, this is part of the process. This yeah. is part of the lesson. There's one more section in your book I want to cover, and also a few more good questions have come in. So there's a section in your book that's interesting. It's called Turning Up the Dial on Your Ego. And you know, a lot of spiritual teachers say, kill the ego, diminish the ego, get rid of your ego. So this is interesting because you say that the ego needs to be dialed up as as awareness is dialed up. And so what do you mean by that? Okay, so this applies to people, particularly sensitive people and empaths. When somebody is super sensitive, you know, as I mentioned earlier, someone who's an empath or someone who's super sensitive, they have a tremendous amount of awareness of other. They are very aware of the needs of your needs and your energy and what you need. And and I said, empaths go out and rescue you whether you ask for it or not. So they have all this awareness of other, but hardly any awareness of themselves or their own needs. So their own egos are repressed. So if their own ego is repressed, you're not going to take care of yourself. It takes a little bit of an ego to be able to say, okay, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to receive. I am worthy and deserving of receiving. You do need a bit of an ego to do that. So we have to stop demonizing the ego My point is that when we say somebody is egotistical, I'm not saying be egotistical. When we say somebody is egotistical, what it means is they only have awareness of self. They are narcissistic. They're possibly sociopathic. And they have no conscious awareness of other or of the planet. It's all about them. That's egotistical. But many empaths and highly sensitive people are the opposite. They have a repressed ego and only have awareness of other and do not have any awareness of their own needs and they put themselves last. Now, if these same people and usually empaths and sensitive people are attracted to spiritual teachings, so if these same people who already have a repressed ego, who are not taking care of themselves, are only aware of other and giving and serving and being there for everyone except themselves. They are attending spiritual teachings that are telling them ego is bad. You have to kill the ego. You have to transcend the ego. They are then repressing their ego even more. That was me before my NDE. I am describing myself. So basically, I repressed my ego because I already had a repressed ego and was only aware of needs of others, not my own, and then was attracted to spiritual teachings where I was told ego is bad, 
I repressed my ego to the point where I made myself invisible. I was invisible to the point of being a doormat, to the point of draining myself, to the point of getting cancer. And so this is why I tell people, it's not about suppressing your ego. You can take care of your ego. You can dial up the ego, but just make sure the conscious awareness dial is also up. You need to match both. Like if you have huge awareness of the needs of other people and the planet, you need to bring up your ego dial as well so that you can take care of yourself so that you can serve the planet. And a lot of spiritual teachers do say that, you know, you have to actually develop a healthy ego before you can transcend the ego. And transcending it doesn't necessarily mean, obviously doesn't mean suppressing it or anything like that. It just means sort of yeah. having a, a blossoming of universal awareness where you still have the sense of, yeah, I am a person, but I'm just not only a person. You know, I'm much more than just this individual entity you see here. Exactly. And when you have developed a healthy ego, the ego stops even being an issue. Yeah. It just becomes a non-issue. Okay, here's a few more questions. Um, this is from Paul Diaz in Santa Cruz, California. How does one discern another person's negative energy from one's own neg negative projections onto that person? What's my stuff and what's their stuff? It just takes a little bit of practice. It's like if you all you have to do is work on making yourself feel good. And then if you can just do things that expand your energy, whether it's walking in nature, earthing yourself, earthing is a really good way to expand your energy. It's uh, just walk on the beach barefoot or on sand, on earth barefoot, hug a tree. <laughs> I know it's so cliched, but when you earth yourself, you're entraining yourself with the earth's energies and the earth's energies are very cleansing and neutral because uh, you kind of start vibrating or entraining with nature. So when you just focus on expanding your energy and then let's say you're in with a group of people and you feel your energy sink, you know, immediately that's theirs. That's not mine. So when you are feeling down or low in the beginning, don't even worry about the question that you're asking. Don't even worry about, is it theirs? Is it mine? Whose is it? Don't even worry about that. All you have to do is just keep focusing on increasing your own energy. That's all you have to do. I have so many tools. That's why I paused there for a minute. I have so many tools on increasing energy. And it could be anything from journaling. It could be listening to music that really moves you. It could be your art, whatever calls you. Like when you, if you're an artist, if you're a musician, if you're a singer, you have to spend more time doing these things that really, really make you feel connected and make you feel good about yourself inside. The easy one is walking in nature. There are just a ton of things you can do like that. Go watch a sunset, eat good food, spend time with people, people you love. Anything like that can uplift your, your energy. And as long as you keep doing something every day that uplifts your energy, your energy basically, it's just your, it's your life force energy. It creates an aura around you. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to expand your aura. If you're depleted in energy, your aura is really tiny and it's like really close to your skin. And if you're depleted in energy and you go 
and be with somebody else, you are likely to absorb their energy. The bigger your energy, the less likely you are to absorb someone else's energy. And the bigger your energy and the more positive your energy, then when you are with people who are feeling down, they will entrain to you. Their energy will be uplifted by yours because energy entrains to the strongest energy in the room. So if you are feeling down when you go into a room, it means your energy is weak and you're entraining with someone else who is feeling low or depressed. So the thing to really focus on is just to expand and increase your energy. And that's all you have to do. And you take your energy with you wherever you go. And other people get entrained to your energy and they walk away going, oh, wow, that felt really good. Yeah, there's a thing called the Meissner effect. I just looked it up. If there's a superconductor, which is super coherent superconductor, it generates a magnetic field which prevents the incursion of outside influences. But it's because of the incredible coherence that the, the superconductor generates or contains. And I've, I've heard that analogy, I've heard that used as an analogy in, in spiritual contexts where a person can become like a superconductor where their internal coherence is so great that incoherent influences can't penetrate. So I don't know if that's useful or not, but it, it's just sort of an example from science. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it is about that, where, where what aligns with you, with your energy level, is what comes into your field. And anything else, they, they can't penetrate. But in fact, you can penetrate their energy and uplift them. But they can't bring you down. If you are feeling up and down and you're feeling down in the presence of other people, it's actually a sign that your energy is weak. You need to work on just strengthening your energy and not worrying about whose it is, whether it's theirs or yours. And it doesn't mean we're going to be sort of walled off and living in some little cocoon, because I think that the nature of what we're talking about is that you'll still be able to absorb the good stuff, but there'll be sort of a a coherent field around you which will prevent the bad stuff from penetrating. In fact, a lot of people who speak about or to empaths they tend to say that you need strong boundaries. And that's something I don't teach because I think boundaries kind of creates the wall. What I teach empaths is don't worry about the boundaries. Instead, expand your energy. Then you won't need boundaries. If you expand your energy, you take yourself out in the world. You can be with people. And people who can meet you where you're at are the ones who will gravitate towards you. Some of them who are not where you're at, but who are attracted to it, will actually have their energy raised to meet yours. They will have to meet you to interact with you. But you are not actually pushing anyone away. You don't even need to have boundaries. It really is about raising your own energy. Okay, there's one more question here that might give us a good ending point. This is Matthew from Indonesia. He said, when people have NDEs, They've said we are all one soul and we are all part of everybody. Do you also have this feeling as a result of or during your NDE? Yeah, absolutely. We are all connected. It feels like when we are not in our physical bodies, 
we are all part of one consciousness. An analogy that I like to use is that of a mirror ball. You remember those disco balls yeah. from the 70s yeah. or the 80s? Yeah. Uh-huh. So now Saturday if you imagine one of those. Exactly. <laughs> imagine one of those disco balls with the mosaic of all those little mirrors. What does that mirror ball do? It actually, what it does is it deflects light. So you have all these little points of light on the wall in the room. So imagine if this big ball is God or source, because I believe that God or source expresses itself through each of us. So imagine if this big ball with all these little mirrors on it, that is what I call source. Each of these mirror tiles, each one of these tiles is the soul of each person that has ever lived. And if it's the soul of the person, that soul contains every lifetime that the person has ever lived. So that means each tile is one soul and contains every lifetime that that person has lived. And now this mirror ball has every single soul that exists. And then the light that is deflected onto the wall, those points of light, is the current lifetime that you are living right now. So your soul is now deflecting a light on the wall, which is now Rick Archer. So you are there as a point of light on the wall. Me as Anita Morjani, I am a point of light on the wall. And everybody here, even the gentleman that asked the question, is a point of light on the wall. We are all individual beings. So each of us, so each of those points of light is an individual physical being. Each of those points of light thinks it is a separate being because as each of those points of light goes around the room, They're not touching the other lights. They all see the other lights as separate from them. And they're all like separate beings going about like us. We're all separate beings going about doing what we're doing. Now, imagine if when you die, when I died, I realized that, oh, my gosh, I am one of these mirror tiles and I am part of all of these All of these other souls, all of us souls are all connected together to create one thing that I call source. And because we are all connected together, my soul is touching all the souls around me, which are touching all the souls around them. And so my soul, my tile has access to every life that I have lived, but I am also connected to every other soul. So at any point in time, I have access to information of the all that is. That means every lifetime of every soul that has ever lived because we're all connected and all of us together is God. Each of our souls is living right now as a being and we see each other as separate. And so when you see each other as separate, you think that everyone else is, you know, that I have to get ahead of everyone else. I have to compete with everyone else. There isn't enough to go around. And then you die and it's like, oh my gosh, we're all part of one mirror ball. We're all part of one God refracting as separate human beings. So you are a facet 
of God expressing itself as Rick Archer. I am a facet of God expressing myself as Anita Mojani. But we are all part of the one God. Very nice. I'll resist the temptation to make comments because that was perfect and I don't think I could say anything to embellish it or enhance it. So that was great. Ah, So thank you, Anita. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun and thanks for your great questions. I've really enjoyed this. We'll do another one in in nine years from now. (laughs) The (laughs) the last one was nine years ago. It was. You were in a hotel in Dubai, as I recall, at the time. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, see, I didn't even remember where I was, but yeah, you're right. I thought I did it from Hong Kong. Oh, I think it was Dubai. Yeah, you could be right. You could absolutely be right, yeah. (laughs) You've done a lot of traveling, I imagine, since this happened. Yes, a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Great. Well, keep up the good work. I think that thing we were talking about earlier about how we all need to do what we can to kind of enliven the field, to enliven the, well, like you were talking, all these little points on the mirror ball, if each one could become brighter, if all the individuals, if every tree in the forest could be more in touch with the the nourishment that it could derive from the the ground of the forest, then all the trees would become greener and the whole forest would would begin to become genuinely green. You know, as it is now, the forest is kind of gray and withering, and every now and then someone makes an attempt to spray paint it, you know, flying over it with a a paint airplane. But it really needs to come from the roots. And when that happens, the society will flourish, will elect enlightened leaders, everything will be transformed. Yes, it will. It has to come from the root, exactly. Exactly. Thank you for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to those who have been listening or watching. We've had about 250 or 300 people on most of the time. And thanks for your wonderful questions that you sent in. I'm sorry if we didn't get to all of them. I think we got to most of them. Next week's interview, the next interview, which will actually be this coming Saturday, will be with Lawrence Freeman, who's a Benedictine monk living in a monastery in France who's been in dialogue for years with the Dalai Lama and people like that and teaches meditation and maybe he'll even teach some form of meditation during the interview. So we'll see you for that one and uh, thanks again Anita and thanks for all you do. Thank you and thank you for everything you do as well. Yeah, we're all doing what we can as the Beatles sang. (laughs) All right, see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.